Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. off track with Hinch and Rossi. I know with a lot of people in the F1 world and, and European motorsport in general, there's uh, maybe not a, maybe not the right way to put it, but they look down on IndyCar a little bit. There's, there's a little bit of an attitude about it. And I know that you've never really been that kind of uh, personality in motorsport. You're, you're, you've been a fan of the Indy 500. You talk about watching IndyCar and stuff. What do you, what do you think it is? Do you just appreciate all form of motorsport or is it something particular that draws you to IndyCar? I love racing and I love races. Um, I like proper tracks, I like proper cars. I'm, a, I'm, an, I'm an open wheel fan, if I'm, if I'm completely honest, over, over almost any other type yeah. of racing. Um, I, I spent you know, a good few years as press officer for GP2 when that was launched. When I first started out, I spent most of my time in the Formula 3000 paddock, far more time than I spent in the Formula 1 paddock, just getting to know the young guys coming through. Um, I, and I love IndyCar. I, I hate the kind of the perception of it's F1's poorer, younger brother or something like that. Or, or you know, oh, the F1 driver has, has a failed career. Don't worry, there's always IndyCar. Like, I hate that. It's just, it's so snobbish and snooty. And mm-hmm. that kind of an opinion is, is clearly formed by someone who's never watched an IndyCar race in their life. Um, because I love the openness one. of it. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, Hinch knows. I, I I'm such a massive IndyCar fan. I always have been, um, and you know, we didn't really grow up with with IndyCar in the UK. We did get it for like one year or two years when Mansell moved over. Mm. So we got the '93 season broadcast in the UK, and that was the first time, and I think probably the only time until recently where it was consistently broadcast in the UK. Um, and I loved watching that, you know, those big, big, heavy, muscular cars. That was like, because it was so different to Formula One. Formula One, they were small, light, nimble things. And these massive, oh, they were, yeah, they were, were they champ cars back then? No, they were Indy cars. It was Indy car. Yeah. yeah. Um, it was before the, before the split. Yeah. Um, I loved it. Absolutely loved it. And, and, and I still do. And being able to go experience it you know, through being part of this this mad world, going out to a, a few races and then being fortunate enough to be employed by NBC and be employed to go and report on them as well and be on pit road and that experience. I'll never forget the first time at Indy and broadcasting from Indy for the first time was, was one of the most emotional weeks of my life. Was, was your first trip to the 500 when you were working or had you been as a fan? Yeah. 
No, and I've still not been on race day. Um, you weren't there I've on still race not day. Been to the, no, I, no, because because in those days NBC did the quality week and ABC had the race. Right, mm-hmm. of course, of course. So, so right back so in Monaco. We do, yeah, so we'd do the qualifying week and then the whole team, including Diffie, would fly straight to Monaco. Um right. as soon literally as soon as bump day was done, we were up and out and, yeah, yeah, yeah. and over to Europe, which was which was wild. So so back backtracking a, a half step. Uh, obviously you started out on as uh, as a print journalist and then you're now known for your your on camera work your commentary work so when did yeah. the tra- when did that transition happen when did you jump in front of oh. the camera for the first time television where journalism goes to die uh it was <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> i thought that was podcasts <laughs> no that's, that's after television te- that's where you television know, goes to die exactly the internet <laughs> Where television journalism goes to die. Um, uh, uh, yeah, so so TV, it just like most things in life, just one bumbling mistake. I um, I I was a print journalist. I was writing for a magazine. I did I did three years. So started off F one mag. F one mag got closed down. So I freelanced, bought a camper van, drove around Europe for a year, driving to every Grand Prix. And at the end of that year, I got offered the job as um, press officer for GP2, which was launching, which is now known as Formula 2. So I did that. After a year, I got my director of communication, saw that out for three years, worked with Nico Rosberg in his championship year, Lewis Hamilton in his championship year. So all these kids coming through the, the junior ranks, and it was the most wonderful few years. And then I came back to, to full-time journalism in 2008. And at the very end of that year, I got a frantic phone call in China because the GP2 Asia series, which had been launched that year, and was one of the reasons I left uh, GP2, because the workload was just going sky high and they didn't want to pay me anymore. So I was like, I'm not going to do two jobs for the same money. So, so I went back to journalism. That's, yeah, that's foolish, because that it paid even worse. Right. Um, but but j- journalism was where I wanted to be. And, you know, PR was not, I was not cut out for PR. As James, you know me very well. You, I'm not the most PR sort of appropriate person <laughs> at the best of times. So, so um, uh, end of the year, I get, I, get a, I get a frantic phone call in China. Will, can you come to the broadcast center? So I'm at the track. I, I went to the broadcast center. Um, Will, we don't have anyone to do commentary for GP2 Asia this weekend. Um, you used to do uh, PR for GP2. I was like, yeah. They were like, well, from what we understand, nobody really knows more about GP2 than you. Do you think you could pick up a microphone and just cover for the weekend? All right, cool. I'll give it a go. Sure. I'd never held a microphone for anything other than karaoke before. So I didn't know what was going to happen. They gave me a dry run in practice, um, which wasn't being broadcast. And at the end of practice, they said, yep, great. You're doing qualifying in the races. No co-commentator, no nothing. Just go in, get there, do it. So I did qualifying, did the races, somehow didn't swear. And they <laughs> said, thanks very much. Absolutely mega. And then at the start of the next year said, did I want to, carry on doing gp2 asia and did i want to do the full season so i did and uh and then at the end of that year i got a phone call from speed channel who said we've been taking the world feed of gp2 and putting our own commentary on top of it but while it's coming in we've actually been listening to your feed and it's great and we love it and we're losing peter windsor our pit lane reporter because he was going to start the um uh, usf1 team which ultimately never never came to anything 
uh, but would you like to be our new pit lane reporter in Formula One? So I said, 1,000%, let's go. And that was how, how television started. It was, it was a, a complete mistake because, you know, I grew up in the UK. Murray Walker did television. Yeah, Murray Walker was the voice of Formula One, and you don't grow up thinking I want to do Murray's job because Murray did Murray's job. So yeah, you so assume Murray would be there TV forever. Was, it just never it was yeah, never so going to be an option. The whole wanting to broadcast Formula One was never that was never what I wanted to do. I wanted to write about it. I wanted to share my passion for motorsport with folks at home, and I thought that would be through the through the written word. So television was a a really happy mistake, and been doing that for more than a decade now. And I, I absolutely love it. So uh, that's so, that's such a cool story. And again, there's parallels between us once more. <laughs> I know, man. Because of how I got asked to do the, uh, the champ car international feed alongside Jeremy Shaw, when I was still racing in the Formula Atlantic championship. And it was sort of like, yeah, come for a segment of the show end of the first commercial break. Do you want to stay for a second one? Yeah, sure. I'll stay. End of the second one. Do you want to stay for the rest of the race? Sure. Stayed for the whole race. End of that race. Want to do it again next week? And then they had me for the whole season and hired me the next year. There you go. And that's kind of what set the path on the broadcast side. It's happy mistakes, man. That's, that's the best thing with life is, is saying yes, you know, because imagine that first broadcast, if you're like, actually I got, I got somewhere I need to be. Just say yes to everything. So true. So speaking of happy mistakes, I don't know if it's a mistake. I don't know if you would consider it that, but it's a happy development, something you said yes to. If you're talking about my child. (laughs) (laughs) Tim can relate. It's no, there's uh, (laughs) something happened recently that you said yes to that I think in in certain ways sort of changed your life a little bit. when you and I worked our first race together back in Austin last year, we would <laughs> we would drive up to the hotel and get out at valet. And in, in an F1 with its fandom, as it is now, the fans have figured out where teams and drivers stay and they camp out on the sidewalk, in the lobby, whatever, looking for autographs from Leclerc, from Science, from Norris, whatever. So Billy Buxton and I rock up to, uh, to valet get out of the car and from the front door, not even from the front door, you didn't make it to the front door from exiting the <laughs> car to the elevator, which is I'm giving it 20 yards away total across the pathway through the lobby to the elevator. It took you about 35 minutes to get there because yeah. you had to stop for selfie after selfie, after autograph, after autograph, because Will Buxton is the face of Drive to Survive, one of the biggest shows in Netflix history and one of the massive catalysts for the explosion of popularity of F1 globally. So was there ever a question about whether you would go on the show? When they first asked you to do it, did you even think about it? Or did you say, yeah, sure, I'll help out. And then just let's just talk about how your life changed in the subsequent five years. So when you were talking about saying yes to things and then you brought up Austin I thought you meant saying yes to going out for a drink with Connor Daly uh, which has its <laughs> like, we've all been there and yeah, we know yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean there is there needs to be a book about what happens or what can happen on a night out with Connor because I'm <laughs> sure we could all regale stories for months I don't think it, I don't think a single one of them could be put out to the public 
<laughs> I think they should be. Eventually. I think, I think it needs they to be need treated to be. like the JFK assassination. We write it all down and nobody can oh. see it until a hundred years after the last of us dies. Yeah, I mean, I think you have, you know, the, the names have been redacted. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so, so, uh, right. Yeah. So drive to survive. So again, a case of saying yes, but in this case, as with most things, um, I didn't know what I was saying yes to. Uh, Sean Bratches was running the marketing side of Formula One, um, ex-ESPN, uh, visionary, one of the one of the greatest leaders I've ever worked for. Um, but one of those leaders who actually you you kind of consider that you work with them rather than for them because they're so inclusive and 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 brilliantly motivating. Um, and he just was walking through the office one day in London uh, very soon after I started there, and he's just like. You know, well, and I was like, yeah, he's like, how's the family? So you're talking about, uh, I need you to do some interviews. We're doing a series on Netflix. I needed you to do some interviews. Uh, you're going to get a phone call. I need you to say yes. Absolutely, Sean. Not a problem. Because if Sean said he wanted you to do it, then and you did it because you, you knew it was going to be good. But I thought I was going in to interview the drivers. I thought, okay, we're doing right. this Netflix series. They need people to interview the drivers. Fine, that's what I do. That's my job. I, I talk to the drivers every day over the weekend, know them inside out. They clearly want somebody that they trust to ask the questions and not, and not ask embarrassing stuff or stuff they're not going to want to answer and draw some good stuff out of them, I thought. So I get there for the first recording session and and then there's this camera staring at me and i'm like oh god i wasn't expecting this and and this is where the entire meme worthy trope <laughs> of me being being terrible at getting an answer out and taking forever to to say because me when i talk you know i talk like this it's relatively cogent and coherent and relatively fast-paced and this is how i talk this is me not the slow thinking taking forever over an answer like that that's not me but they start launching these questions at me and i'm like a what do i say that doesn't let out more than i should that right. doesn't annoy anybody that, that that doesn't get me fired that, you know, what do i so i was really having to like freak out and think of how i would formulate these answers and and everything just started coming out in its really sort of weird way. But and and they loved it and said we love the way that you just you you break things down and you take quite a complex issue and make it really simple. And and the thing I always get, you know, people take the piss and say, you know, if you cross the line first, you finish. You know, you you win you win the race. I never actually said that, but I did say you want to start on pole position because then you start ahead of the other nineteen drivers because. <laughs> Because <laughs> they, they asked me the and and again this this is a, a big kind of um, misunderstanding. People think I have a script, and I don't. I spend about twenty five hours a year being interviewed. It's about five sittings, uh, each take five hours, and they ask me a bunch of questions, and I and I answer them. If I had a script and it took me twenty five hours to get those lines out, I you know they'd never employ me again because because <laughs> theoretically I'd be charging by the hour. Um, but it was, you know, they ask you the questions, you try and think of the answers, um, and what comes out sort of, um, you know, comes out, and it's not scripted. So when they said, um, "Why is pole position so important?" and I said, "Well, you know," I, and I kind of like shrugged my shoulders. Obviously, like, well, yeah. You no, know, you want to start on pole position because then you're ahead of the other nineteen drivers. I went, brilliant, 
do that again. So it's like, okay. And then I started to figure out what they needed. And they need those kind of things because yeah. let's take any other sport. Let's, let's, let's take athletics. Let's take the 100 meters, for example. You're Usain Bolt, okay? And you qualify for the 100 meters final with the fastest qualifying time. Why the hell should he start with a meter advantage over the guy with the second fastest qualifying time? who himself starts a meter ahead of the person with the third fastest qualifying time because you qualify 10th for the 100, or however many lanes there are, eight. You, you qualify eighth for the 100 meter final. You ain't got a chance because you're starting eight meters behind Usain Bolt by the time the, the gun goes off. So you do kind of have to explain these <clears throat> things if you consider that right. so many people are coming to Formula One brand new, fresh through Drive to Survive. And Stefano Domenicali said the other week, they consider now from all of the, 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 the research they've done and the, and the data that they've accumulated that Formula One's fan base, one in three fans now is what we would consider a new fan. So has only started watching within the last five years. That means they never saw Sebastian Vettel in a competitive car. Yeah. They never even saw Schumacher race, um, let alone know who Ayrton Senna was, let alone know who freaking Denny Holm was. You know, like, so, so it's a, a huge task of, of education and things that we take for granted, things that we think are ridiculously simple and, and I, you know, get ripped mercilessly for the, for, the, for the things that I have to explain on Drive to Survive, but we do it because we know there are people coming to this who won't know all these things that we take for granted. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. got another day of NBA action. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every night a watch party only on FanDuel. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car. It's the two-door coupe that was there for your first drive. The hatchback that took you cross-country and back. And the minivan that tackles the weekly carpool. For the cars you couldn't live without, trust Amica Auto Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Yeah, you get you get ripped mercilessly by the 0.1% that's been around from the beginning and knows all the stuff inside out, but it is immensely helpful <laughs> to the 80% that classifies anything but that. But but that one percent can often forget that they had their first Grand Prix. Yeah, Everybody sure. had their first mm -hmm. or first motor race. We all had our first motor race where we knew nothing. 
You know, I, I learned through reading Autosport magazine, you know, but when I saw my first Grand Prix, I didn't have a clue what was going on. I didn't know who Ayrton Senna was. I didn't know what that red and white car was and how it was different to the blue car and the green and white car or, you know, I didn't, I didn't know anything. You learn through osmosis over time and through reading. Now you're expected to know everything because the internet exists, so you have everything at your fingertips, but it's just not possible. And the whole trope of new fan versus old fan, I hate it. And I hate the gatekeeping that exists within the sport of you're a new fan, so you don't deserve to enjoy this sport. Like, come on. Yeah, we that was as, you. At some point, that was you. Yeah. And we were nerds and we were ostracized and we were outcasts because we love Formula One. Don't treat other people like right. outcasts because they want to be a now part of this want, thing yeah, that yeah. you love. Yeah. Plus, you don't own it. It's not yours to, to gatekeep. It's not yours to allow people in or not. I would have killed when I was a kid for more people to love this thing that I loved. Yeah. Why, why try and stop them? Oh, they're a new fan. They don't know. Then help them. Yeah. Teach them. Yeah. And Talk you've to done, them. Tell them why. You've done it so well. And this is where I'm just going to pump your tires a little bit because I thought this was really funny. You've done it so well. And I think, I think that, to your point, any, any show or documentary or whatever that's covering a topic that's not just kind of widely known by everybody, and sometimes even if it is, has to have that person that does help bring the audience up to speed on certain elements, right? But that is now referred to as the Will Buxton role. Like I've been asked, like when we did 100 Days to Indie, they approached me to like, hey, we want you to be the Will Buxton of 100 Days to Indie. <laughs> When when you watch like full so swing sorry. on Netflix, really? yeah, yeah, yeah. Like you are a you're like a verb now. Like we need you to Will Buxton this. Like I need you to explain it, clear, concise, but you know, accurate, detailed, but simple enough. For it. So you're a you've like created a you are the role universally now in any of these movies or shows where the person explains stuff. That's you. Wow, that's um. I always thought to Buxton something would mean to like to mess it up. So that, that's <laughs> no, that's when you tim it. That's yeah. Uh, that's a that's a thin, that's a thin thing. Well, look, man. Um, that that means a lot. Thank you, man. Um, but I think I can't take any any credit for any of that. You know, I think I think what plays to your point uh, far more than 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 any sort of you know role I have in it is is what Box to Box have done and what the entire crew behind that show has done, which is when you talk about a documentary series for a sporting entity, whether it was 100 Days to Indy, whether it was, um, you know, Breakpoint, whatever the sport, when they look for a documentary, they don't say, we need a documentary about our sport. They say, we need a drive to survive. And yeah. that, you know, it's completely shifted the paradigm of what a sports documentary can be. And it's no shock because the people behind it were the people that brought you Senna, you know, the movie, the documentary movie. They right. did the Amy Winehouse documentary movie. They did the Maradona one. You know, they know intrinsically how to craft a, a brilliant narrative and a wonderful story. Um, such a talented team. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a real honor to, to watch them work and to, to play a very small role in, in something that huge. Is, um, it's, it's amazing. And I, I feel tremendously grateful that, Sean Bratch has ever decided to, you know, shout over the 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 the, the office, you know, will I need you to go and and do this thing for me? Because yeah. it's um yeah, it's pretty it's pretty 
It's pretty mad. Even if it does take us ages to now get to dinner in Austin, we'll take it. <laughs> totally worth it, bud. Totally worth it. Well-deserved totally accolades it, for the job you do. I know fans <laughs> all over the world really appreciate it. As do we. As a fan, I appreciate it. And, uh, and we appreciate Thanks. you coming on the show. This has been Off Track with Hinch and Rossi. Off Track is part of the SiriusXM Sports Podcast Network. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, please give us a five-star rating and leave a review. Subscribe today wherever you stream your podcasts. We're at Ask Off Track on Twitter and Instagram. If you want to follow us on Twitter individually, I'm at Hinchtown. He's Alexander Rossi. And if you want to follow Fim, though we have no idea why you would, he's at the Tim Durham on Twitter. Follow us on YouTube and subscribe to our channel for exclusive video content. Off Track is produced by Tim Durham, and by that we mean Fim. got another day of NBA action. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every night a watch party only on FanDuel. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil.